I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show oh got a little bit of ba 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 yeah so um dum 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 so many so many so many damn books uh welcome everybody to the uh 24th episode of so many damn books i'm christopher and i'm will and drew is absent uh he is a sick sick man (laughs) (laughs) and what i mean by that is he uh he desperately wanted to come to the light to the damn library today he actually was texting me the day before trying to read uh the book for this week and and saying I, I'm gonna try as hard as I can, and uh, and he's incredibly depressed. He can't be here. This is the first one that he's missing. The so ghost of Drew is always with us, though. Yeah, that's true. He just moved a book off the bookshelf. <laughs> There's probably some code happening here. Yeah, it's night film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Drew is missed. But thank you very much to Will Chancellor, author of A Brave Man Seven Stories Tall, out now in paperback. Good, yeah. Paperbacks are fun because I, I think I wrote a book for paperback people. Like I had a <laughs> I had a never buy hardcover policy until I was like thirty. Right. Um, I'm eighty two now, mm-hmm. so I've been buying hardcovers for a while. But um, but I yeah I don't know. Paperbacks are fun. They're much less like scary to carry around and buy. It's like less of a commitment. I always feel like I'm really plunking down for hardcover. Sure. If OK Cupid is a hardcover, Tinder is the paperback, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> you just swipe through those pages. There was a really good thing I read this this week um, about uh, Justin Taylor wrote a fantastic essay in Bomb about consecution, and he linked to this uh, Lutz piece from The Believer in 2009, and Lutz uses this phrase that there are readers who are page turners and reader, readers who are page huggers, and I'm definitely mm-hmm. like of that uh, page hugging camp. So I don't know how that fits in with Tender. It's probably a little bit more, you know, Okay, tender. <laughs> Somewhere in between there. Wait, you, you used a word that I don't know. Consecution. What is that? It's the idea that one word has with it certain, I think the phrase that Lutz uses is ejecta or something that it like kind of spits out into the next word. And oh. so prose, and the whole essay is about the poetics of prose, but the idea being that when you're really in the moment of you know execution and revision, that there's an, an inevitability to the word that follows. So one word, you know, it kind of 
spits forward into the next word and that they propel the whole prose propels itself through different consonant sounds um assonance is you know a, a big device that he talks about in that and mm-hmm. i don't know it's but that essay justin taylor's essay in bomb is really amazing We'll, uh, we'll link to it on so many damn <laughs> for the episode notes for this episode. Yeah. Well, welcome, Will. Wow. Welcome. Thanks That's for having quite me. A, yeah. quite, um, quite a beginning. To <laughs> well, this, the natural segue was, you know, a question of did you actually follow through and buy paperback books or <laughs> are you a jerk who only buys hardcover? Uh, I buy it. I buy it all. You know, I never know what I'm going to end up buying at a bookstore. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll go for. I like that spirit of not having a programmed reading list. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of times you fall into reading that's assigned to you that you have to do things that you have to blurb or review. And, um, it's, it's fun just to pick something up and see where it takes you. I think a lot of those discoveries of reading through uh, having my characters read through the books that I'm reading are only possible by having eclectic tastes. Mm-hmm. Like if I were only reading books that came out, then the way that my characters were reading releases from summer of 2015 would be kind of uh, monotonous, I think. Right. Um, I think one of the themes of so many damn books is you, is is that you have to be in the mood for what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can come to a book at the wrong time. Absolutely. And it's really, really bad to force yourself to read something. And it's that same thing when you have, like if you're trying to introduce a band to someone and you, you want to start with, probably like the best or mm-hmm. very close to the best um right. that they have and or and uh start someone off that way like my my I'm trying to get my daughter into Kate Bush right now mm-hmm. and so I I started her with Weathering You're Heights. Running up that hill right now? No, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, Hounds of Love will wait a little bit, but I figured you know there's enough eclecticism in in Weathering Heights to where I could get her mm-hmm. hooked on that. Um How's it going? She digs. Okay. <laughs> she definitely digs. But it's the same, you know, I have the same thing with with Jesse Ball. Like, mm-hmm. um, and trying to s- get someone into an author that I love and, like, what's the entry point that makes the most sense? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, part of it, it, when you're recommending a book, part of it is gauging where someone is in, you know, her life. But it's also trying to... Uh, trying to think you want to put the best thing out there early definitely you know um but that is a good question what'd you buy mm. uh i bought uh the uh i only bought a couple of things since last episode what restraint <laughs> uh believe me it's not restraint <laughs> if it was restrained, I wouldn't have bought anything. I have so many books I haven't read. But I bought uh, The Fly Trap by uh, Frederick, I think, Zoberg. That's good enough for, for government work. Um, it's, a, it's a little memoir about... Uh, it's uh, written by a, a fly... Uh, I don't know, entomologist? Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, etymologist or entomologist? Ent- entomologist, right. And it's just a, the, it's one of these books that the packaging is really like what caught my eye first, and then it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful book. And you then should spell the last name because it's yeah. There's no way anybody. Be, oh yeah, naturally that's S J. Uh-huh. Yeah, S J uh, O with an umlaut uh, B E R G, 
And uh, I'm very excited to read it. Um, and then I also got this book called The Dorito Effect um, <laughs> by Mark Schatz, Schatzker, S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-E-R. And it's a nonfiction book about looking at the um, scientific creation of different flavors and taste and That's looking into like how can they make nacho cheesier chips or colors like yeah this tastes like purple exactly yeah uh and it's a world that i'm very interested in especially after reading um you too can have a body like mine by alexander kleeman which has a lot about um you know manufactured flavors Mm -hmm. but yeah so i'm very excited i i love i I have a really bad addiction to like trying every single type of oreo that exists (laughs) see i never got past otter pops like louis (laughs) blue is still like every time i taste the chemical raspberry thing i'm like oh there's louis blue (laughs) (laughs) it's bad yeah so i'm interested to see uh see where this all comes from uh will what did you buy uh i bought a lot um yeah i see you brought your stack to the damn library yeah i i walk around with a satchel like santa claus and just have books and i actually end up giving a lot of books away during the course of of a week but um but i kept these i've got the suicide of claire bishop by Kermile Benaski. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a book that came out on zank that i've heard some really good things about from some readers that um whom i trust and i also bought I Love Dick by Chris Krause. There was a great review of that um, that made everyone kind of go crazy. It's like two years old, right? Or is it? Oh, I think it's even older than that. I think it's originally 97 and, and oh, Semiotex like oh, okay. reissued it. But mm. um, it was in, there was, a, there was a nice thing that uh, Men's Journal put together of writers recommending books. And, uh, and that was a recommendation that that I I really uh clung on to mm-hmm. and so I decided wow it's kind of ridiculous that I haven't read that yet. That's a provocative title to be reading on the subway. It's the best to be reading <laughs> on the subway. <laughs> I love dick. It was also pretty good to to wreck that in men's journal. Mm-hmm. Um I also got a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. book that I you know it's embarrassing. I can't remember if I ever read this, but The Sirens of Titan. I haven't read that one. Um it's. I read all of them. I, I binge read all of Vonnegut uh, my freshman year in high school, and mm-hmm. there are only a couple. Cat's Cradle I've returned to a, a bunch, but um, but a lot of them I haven't. I um, haven't revisited. Let me see if you agree with this. Um, I just read for the very first time The Crying of Lot Forty Nine mm-hmm. uh, by by Thomas Pynchon, um, <laughs> and uh, I was. I I thought it was very good. At some points, I kind of thought it was just sort of. It reminded me of lesser Vonnegut in some in, huh. in a lot of ways. Well, there's definitely something going on with, um, you know, Vonnegut. To me, the the gravity in his in his physics of all his books is kindness. Like kindness is serving mm-hmm. like gravity. That it's you know, if people are uh, are unkind, then they fall. You know, mm-hmm. and um, he he has that brilliant. Uh, video clip that you can find on YouTube of story structure, and he talks about you know the Cinderella story, and he graphs oh, different yeah. stories uh, through time, and the the you know what's determining the slope of that graph is the kindness of the characters. I think in in his work, and in Crying a Lot Forty Nine, you know that that calculation is kind of absent. You know, right. you no, d- it's paranoia. I think is really the gravity mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in Pynchon's writing, especially in this one. Mm-hmm. 
um, fully realized, you know, and uh, just that's the thing that made the cow country discussion this week so (laughs) funny. Did you did you catch that? So uh, for those who don't know, uh, the a um, a pension expert came out to say that a recently released novel Cow Country was written by Pynchon underneath a pseudonym, and he was trying to uh, prove this via sentence structure and the, I guess, the pure existence of paranoia in the novel. And, you know, thematically, I think the the theme made sense. I, I really wanted to, to see more um, textual analysis right. and, like, something that actually... Like our Consecution discussion a second ago. Right. Like, seeing how, um, you know, the, the word choice... Um, specifically, you know, the decision to use certain words instead of others, not just like zany names, because, you know, like garbage pail kids have zany names, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> Thomas Pynchon authored garbage pail kids. It's maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe it does. Well, maybe Pynchon has a lot to do with garbage pail kids. You heard it here first. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, in the the big, to me, the the big flaw in that argument was Pynchon has successfully had a fully realized career of staying out of attention, you know, and he Mm -hmm. hasn't, he hasn't sought attention, but he hasn't, he sought anti-attention. And this seemed like a a very deliberate, you know, job of, of attracting anti-attention. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to be touched, you know, and I think he would rather both of them go away. I think he just wants to write in, anonymity and right. not have any sense of you know being that guy i bet it pisses him off he's like i don't want to be that guy who's like not participating in this but i just want to be left alone and right mm-hmm. you know and again just sort of in that ferrante way yeah um that mm-hmm. ferrante is actually very actively about like, i think yeah absolutely like she's that's a that's a great analogy she's um she's done that same thing i don't think she really relishes her, her you know her status as being an anonymous writer but um but i i think she just thinks that it's necessary for her craft right i do love that thing that she says um i did the work already i wrote the novel mm-hmm. about um why she won't do any more press for it yeah it's uh david mitchell has a has something that was really helpful for me this this last year he talks about the difference between wearing his writer hat and wearing his author hat and he says that you know if he's when he's a writer that's when he's actually doing the work but then there's all of this other stuff that goes with it of being an author you know like being a responsible literary citizen and and helping generate enthusiasm for other writers and doing what your publisher wants you to do and and, you know representing and showing up and i think you know i i think that that's a real thing like it's it's a luxury to only be a writer, but I, I think the reality is that that's not something that anyone should count on. Right. Alexander Chi wrote a very interesting essay about this, looking at Ferrante's uh, reluctance to be part of this uh, for LitHub, mm-hmm. that if you guys are interested in this question, I recommend, where he kind of is trying to decide how he feels and how he talks about missing his privacy yeah. in some way. And this is somebody, I mean, Alex Chi is, is number one, on the literary citizen, you know, uh, index of New York, he has done so much for so many people, and uh, you know, he just always represents. He's he's always out there, you know, quick to offer advice to young writers and just mm. help people out. He's he's really done gone above and beyond the author part of everything, mm-hmm. um, 
and he's got a book coming out at the start of uh, right in February next year. Next yeah. year uh, Queen of the Night. Queen of the Night. Yeah, which it sounds really interesting. It's also really big. Yeah, big old big old novel. Yeah, um, but I'm I'm yeah, really looking forward to that. You're, and I'm only and halfway you're only halfway through, through what you bought. Only this halfway week. through my consumerism. <laughs> Yikes. Um, well, I got a couple of them used, so that that helps. That but, helps. Um, I got uh, a book called The Revelator. Okay. That was a direct recommendation from David Gutowski, large-hearted boy who. Uh, oh yeah. He's. You know, if he's definitely up there on the great literary citizens map, he's mm-hmm. uh, he's pretty amazing, and that's written by Robert Kloss. Uh, he said it's one of his favorite books of the year, and that's enough for me mm-hmm. um, to to go with it. And then, as a result of this uh, Gordon Lish consecution bomb believer discussion, I picked up uh, Harold Bloom's book "Ruin the Sacred Truths." Right, Bloom is invoked a lot in those. Yeah, it's fun. I mean. You know, his version of close reading is a little bit different than the... Than most. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it, say what you will, uh, the guy's a, a fantastic reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last book that I got this week was Joy Williams' The Visiting Privilege. Oh, yeah. People love her. Um, I've missed a couple events. I'm actually... We're missing an event right now on on Saturday night. There's a, there's a reading going on right now. Oh, no. Yeah. But such is this life. This is what we get. <laughs> well uh wow well you have read reading ahead of you <laughs> the the finest of things the finest of to-do lists i think for this week or for this episode uh you recommended the book um a cure for suicide not by, the cure just a cure a cure <laughs> for suicide by jesse ball mm-hmm. who uh we did talk about uh, Drew and I talked about uh, when he was in the morning news tournament of books uh, for Silence Once Begun. Um, but this new novel is uh, now long listed for the National Book Award. And it's a beautiful book. And I, uh, yeah, I'm, it, it was a very good recommendation. Thank you. Oh, no. It's, it, you know, he was recommended to me by my editor, uh, my my editor at Harper, my second editor, Barry Harbaugh, um, I told him how much I loved Tom McCarthy's remainder. And he said, well, have you read Jesse Ball yet? And Mm -hmm. the name was totally new to me. Um, And I devoured, I I think, you know, we might talk about this later, but Jesse Ball's books are, this is his fifth novel. And Mm -hmm. I think he's 35. And I think he has about three or four books that he's written and just uh, are, he's waiting in the wings. Wow. Um, And, his his books I think are best read in in one sitting, uh, which is pretty rare. You know that somebody writes in such a way that propels you to read in one sitting. But it's also just you know the length uh, being manageable in in that amount of time is also kind of rare. Mm-hmm. And so he was new to me last year, and I read everything um, right in a row. And he's definitely one of my favorite writers. Uh, he's I think he's 35 and just, you know, I, the, I, we need a new ceiling <laughs> you know, like, because he's, uh, he's just killing it. Um, and this book I think is, we were talking about entry points. This mm-hmm. one is a fantastic entry point. This would actually be the book that, that I think to start with it's, I, I say this about a lot of books as soon as I finish them, but 
it, I'm, the books that I love, I'm like, well, that's one of the best books ever. Mm-hmm. But like, I can I can certainly say that that right now, this is my favorite Jesse Ball book. Um, you know, by a significant margin, I think it integrates a lot of the themes that he uh, has written about his entire career. So in in 2007, he released his first novel with Vintage, uh, mm-hmm. Sam D. The Deafness, and it was actually the second book that he had written. The first book that he wrote was The Way Through Doors, and then after Sam D. was published, The Way Through Doors was published, um, and then The Curfew, and then Silence Once Begun, and now A Cure for Suicide. Um, well, the, so the, A Cure for Suicide, uh, his this recent uh, triumph, is uh, mm-hmm. is about a m- man and a woman who are in a um, sort of an anonymous location, and they're called the claimant, which is the man, and the examiner, which is the woman. And the man has no memory of who he was or how to, to live in basic function, and the examiner is there to help and lead but not necessarily give all the answers and she they are in a constant dialogue about how to live and how to exist and the way that jesse ball writes is in these very sort of simple sentences uh very muted i would say and you really find the grittiness in the subject matter and what he's in what he's getting at which is always about memory and this this one especially is about societal constructs and how to be a good member of society how to be a bad one how to how to exist and and tell the truth and well lie. i think one of the things that he would say is that that lying is necessary to be a good member of society um right. and he talks about conditional lies and as being relatively innocent like mm-hmm. if and basically that civility is a lie like so if somebody comes you know if somebody that you can't stand uh walks into a room and says you know hi you saying hi back instead of like you know go kick rocks is right. is a lie you know like there's a, there's an amount of there's a lie that just allows us to function in society but then there's this bigger overarching lie that allows society to function you know like if you think about the number of people that if you're in the judicial system and you take an oath and you swear you know to uh god that you will tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth uh, most of the people or at least a significant percentage of the people who take that oath don't believe in god but they're engaging in this performative lie in order to in order to allow the justice system to proceed and then in totalitarian states you you see this big lie you know the great lie that's the the mortar that underpins you know that society is built with and if you think about that the physicality of lying that you know to me lies are vertical Mm -hmm. like you they they aggregate and you build on top of them as the lies get bigger and bigger and it's um i i think that that's certainly why don't you read the um the flap copy right or the, the description of of him his bio in the in the back flap there because i think this integrates all of the things that he teaches so there's that yeah that line of of what he teaches in in that mfa program right 
and and I think it's important to to say that the way that he sort of is in uh, is examining lying through this character is because this character has what seems to be no memory mm-hmm. and, and needs to be taught how to live. He is essentially a completely truth-telling person because he only has one other person to contend with, right? And so that person is asking him to 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 be very truthful with her. So she he can't really lie. Mm-hmm. He can't lie until until you know much later in the book. And it's sort of interesting when he when the moment that he realizes that he has to lie is a very much it's it's a it's an examination of of what processes in life call us to lie. Mm-hmm. So he teaches creative writing in an MFA program, but his attitude is that most of the people who pursue an MFA, the problem isn't that they don't know story arcs or, or how to construct you know, characters with convincing interiority. It's that they don't have convincing interiority. So he says that the real problem is that people, don't, people who are pursuing writing don't think in whatever he thinks is is the right kind of way to conceive of, of writing fiction. So instead of teaching a craft course per se, he'll teach uh, he teaches a lying course, how to tell a lie. He teaches a course on creative walking. So they'll mm. walk around um, Chicago, and and he teaches a course on lucid dreaming. So mm. he he thinks that these things, you know, if if you pursue writing from those angles, then, then you end up with something that is more instructive than just teaching craft. So like in his lying course, um, students have to go to a friend and implant a lie in a story. So, and they have to do it based on that particular person's interest. So if I've got a friend who likes to think of himself as being like um, a daring guy, and likes to always take chances or whatever, then I tell him a lie about something that happened early on in our friendship. Like, oh, remember when you were in high school and you were at that party and it was totally crazy. Like there were, you know, there was, uh, there were a group of people around and they were daring you to like shoot a fireball out of your mouth with 151 and you did it. And you know, like things that are totally crazy and completely fabricated. And, he what he, he says is it's amazing how quickly um, people agree to that lie. But then the part that he's that he requires the students to do is to not just get the person to agree to the lie that you're telling them, but to elaborate on the lie. Mm-hmm. And that's I think a little bit like the fiction process that you see here. There's a there, there's a little bit of that in his craft. And in this book, there there's a specific section where there are memories implanted. Of things right. that will happen, you know, in the future, and things that have happened in the past, and that seems like a, a this is directly centered on his concerns, I guess, as a you know, as a professor of of fiction, and and the way that he writes this book in the sen- simple sentences and and uh, and the sort of teaching moments of it um, end up with very interesting. Um, sections where it breaks down not just lying but things like uh uh what to say when you when you meet a stranger right uh or there's this great section that i think i'd like to read a little bit of uh where he's where it breaks down what is expected in a marriage Mm -hmm. 
So after the uh, examiner and the claimant have met a married couple, they're uh, talking about that married couple. Uh, They are married, she and the man. They are married and live together. Do you know what that means? It means that they are for each other. They possess each other. It means people should leave them alone and not interfere. It does not mean that. Some people would like it to. It means that they have declared that each has declared that the other is of great importance to him or her. Life is life. It is not the sets of rules people make. If someone were to fall in love with that man and he were to fall in love with her, he would very likely go off and leave that woman, Hilda. And the same is true of Hilda. All bonds are conditional. It is important to remember that. Why is it? Why is it important to remember that? I don't know. It is important because if you expect that such bonds are permanent, then you can do yourself harm when it becomes true that the bonds are not. Do you see that? The most realistic view is the safest. That is the view we take here. Yeah. So I guess first, do you agree with that? That bonds are conditional? Right. Yeah, they are. Um, But I've never heard it put like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why I was immediately struck by it and sort of marked it down is I I realized that I'd never really thought about what that compact means. It's devastating in context. You know, he's... He, he has his memory completely obliterated and he's finally coming to terms with himself and finally developing a, a rich interiority which includes love and then he's confronted with the idea that love is conditional mm-hmm. that there isn't this perfect version of love there isn't this perfect person who you know who's going to come and save you forever it's um it's something that will always be predicated by the the circumstance and it to me i don't know i don't know how i feel about that i mean i'm i'm a i cling to these deeply romantic notions that he's tearing down but the funny thing to me is he and the the tone the tone of this book is deeply romantic like mm-hmm. he's you know there's this underpinning of just big heartedness that's happening throughout um and that's what keeps it from being heady or um i think you know pretentious right yeah i i i was thinking while i was reading this book that if i were to describe it to someone else i would say it's uh, sort of if lydia davis wrote uh, 1984 by orwell <laughs> and um at the same time though it's 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 simpler than that and i think that i'm just right, sort of saying like it's a like a systems novel told with simple sentences but it's like quieter than that and there, there's he's doing a lot more with explaining why we have the notions that we have but but doing it in such simple language that it just sort of slips by and the plot to me is functioning i think even at a richer level as far as an explanation than it is in, in Orwell, which is a crazy thing to say. But, Mm. um, and again, it's like, I'm in that honeymoon that I always have when I read a book that I love. But, um, the idea of seeding suicide to the government. So the government has steps in here, whatever sort of structure they have. Um, 
steps in and says that people who are on the brink of suicide will have their memories wiped out. They will go to this interlocutor who will then hear their case and erase their memory, you know, fog them and put Mm -hmm. them in this state where they don't remember anything. Sort of reminded me of Eternal Sunshine a little bit. Yeah, definitely. But I don't remember there being a really like a government structure that's doing that. And I think that that distinction is important here. Like Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of the opposite of a biopolitical um, structure where the government controls your life. Instead, in this world, the government controls your death and that thanato-political way. And that's, you know, a crazy... There's there's the idea that a government has the ability to decide life and death, but or who lives and who dies, but this goes one step further and actually gives the government the control over death itself. Mm-hmm. And it's always... And a shadow throughout this novel. It's just, it's it's there that this is a really horrible world. I don't know if you, there was one moment where it, it's, and like the portion that you just read, Ball has this tendency to drop devastating, uh, devastating sentences, just as little asides almost. Mm-hmm. And so in this world, there are the gentlest villages. There are these villages of people reorienting and getting their memories back. Right. And there's one line where it says, well, you know, the villages are pretty much everywhere and pretty soon they will be everywhere. The idea that the entire world, the entire landscape of this fictional world is going to be people who are driven to suicide, have their memories wiped out and are gradually reacclimating themselves and people who are are moderating their experience with reality in that way. Um, To me, that's... You know, it's a quiet devastation throughout this. And it's interesting to kind of skip over the dystopian nature of that and Mm -hmm. sort of instead focus on, you know, two people or three people inside of that system that you don't even see the larger bubble. Right. That I mean, to me, this was the same review or the same reveal that happens in uh, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Mm -hmm. Like that was that's the book that I think this is the closest to emotionally for me, like mm-hmm. the that devastating heartbreaking impact that that's happening at, at, uh, every moment, but it's a little bit, you know, it's pushed away the same way that we, you know, we push death away and we don't really think about, you know, that howling abyss on one side before we existed and the other side, you know, after we die. And the same way that we push that away, he pushes a lot of those political structures, the dystopian political structures away, which to me makes them more haunting and more powerful and just compresses everything in this. It did make me wonder who this novel is for in in a, in some ways because as far as like the literary novel goes um it's it's definitely interesting but it's 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 not like a a family novel and it's not like a relationship that you're deconstructing he's deconstructing society as a whole and the idea of your agency towards your death and your own memory mm-hmm. but it's also not a science fiction novel it's so it's very much like he plays in between that genre and i sort of wondered who who would ever be you know i mean i i think uh, suicides in the title i mean it just seems yeah. like it's very it'd be a very difficult sell for anybody well i i think anybody who loves kafka would mm-hmm. would love this and uh, there's that line of in in kafka that you know his his friend or maybe it was in someone talking about the biography of kafka but his friend goes up and he's like oh franz you're so depressed and he's like he's like don't you think that there's any hope and or he and he says oh yeah like there's 
there's infinite hope in the universe. The universe is full of hope. There's just none for us. <laughs> and that's, uh, that to me is the universe of a cure for suicide is that there's this broad hope, but for the actual characters in it, there, there's none. And to me, that's the most universal idea. And, and, uh, I think the reason that Kafka is so resonant, um, and the love is, you know, is always there as that great hope in Kafka. And I think it's there and there's, there's heartbreak and, you know, this, I, without giving too much away, like he's had his heart just ripped apart. Mm. Um, and that's one place where I kind of see the, like the authorial hand a little bit. Like I trust that, you know, Ball's writing this from a place of just like raw, uh, you know, knowing exactly what that's like to, to be wrenched and, and torn into shreds. And it's, uh, it's uh, to me, there's no more universal uh, theme to write about than than death and love as uh, a great metaphor of death. Like love is the way that we reenact the whole process of of hope and death and nothingness and it's being conditional. Like, um, and I think I think that on a thematic level, this is as universal as it gets, which is what makes this you know a book that I I, I think everybody should read mm-hmm. well and it uh you know it was long listed for the national book award um along with a lot of other amazing titles so i don't know it has <laughs> i don't know about its chances because of what i was saying with it straddling sort of that genre line yeah um, um what are you uh recommending for people to read or taken well there's there's a book um that has been at the front of my head in thinking about talking about cure for suicide and that's uh a book called metropole by ferenc Carinthi, who is a hungarian writer i think it was written in 1960 uh 1964 maybe we could fact check that one but um it's a story about a guy who 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 moves to the central European town to give a conference lecture on linguistics, presumably, and finds himself in this environment where he has no idea what the people are saying. And he's armed to the teeth with linguistic knowledge, but he can't make sense of anyone around him. And he has to try to navigate his way around this metropolitan space that is increasingly uh, distant topic while he is going through an experience that's increasingly dysphoric uh i i think it's a really brilliant book that wow. is uh a little bit overlooked mm-hmm. yeah i've never heard of it um what about you um i i have been thinking about uh i guess ever since um apple released the new ios version or whatever they were talking about how siri is going to be more helpful and uh, take more into account of you and make and be more personalized to just you. And I've been thinking about, uh, you know, technological systems uh, since. And there's this book that has stuck in my mind since I've read it. I think I've read it five or six times now, and uh, I've read it out Whoa. loud with somebody. And it's this book called uh, Feed by M.T. Anderson. Huh. And it's a young adult novel, actually, but it's about this. Uh, of course, since it's young adult, it has to be a dystopic future. Um, but it's, gosh, I even think I might have recommended it on, on this show before somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's about 
they put when you're basically close to birth they put an, a chip in your head that allows you to basically see the internet as a pop-up display huh. on your eyes and uh the the protagonist goes to the moon with his friends and gets hacked by this guy uh in a zero gravity club <laughs> and um in being hacked he also meets this girl who got the feed when she was maybe eight or nine rather than very close to birth got the feeds are pretty good yeah expression, right right um and so it's and so it, his experience with it is very different than hers and they they sort of look through this very strange universe uh that they're in through this lens and it sort of is just a it's sort of just looking at what if we let technology truly and utterly take over everything and um, and how important it is in the way that we've set up our current economy uh, to be part of consumerist culture uh, in in the internet. And there's been a lot of talk since, um, you know, there's we're we're moving more and more into a world where advertisements is the thing that pays for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're not if you can't be advertised to, uh, are you worth having the internet? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Uh, and the book is far more entertaining than I'm making it seem in this uh, <laughs> pitch for it. But Feed by M.T. Anderson, it's very funny. The first line of the book is something like, um, we went to the moon to have fun, but the moon turned out to totally suck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of written like that. Uh, it's, it's, it was, uh, it's an early 2000s book, but it's an incredible novel. The other, um, well, would you, do you ever write science fiction? Would you ever write a science fiction book? Uh, I, I sometimes, I've dabbled. Um, um, well, I, I think I tend to go, uh, dystopia. Um, I had to say not to, (laughs) there was uh, you made me think of this with that implant of the feed. I, I was, I was going to write a book a long time ago, like 10 years ago about, um, and I'm never going to do it now, Mm. but the idea was that free book idea, you guys. Yeah. Free. (laughs) Anybody who wants this, take it. Uh, it's really bad. Um, (laughs) And it was also made into a movie basically. But the idea is that you, um, you're born with synthetic organs that are more higher, that are better functioning versions of some of your real organs. Like just, you have synthetic kidneys, um, and, uh, synthetic, heart just organs that that tend to fail and um these biological like these synthetic implants cost you 15 million dollars or whatever it is and you have to pay off your debt to for being born societally in this in this dystopia so you have to you know you there's this expiration date and if you don't pay off your uh your debt for having you know, DuPont's kidneys implanted <laughs> in you, then, then the repo man comes. Right. Wow. <laughs> to take your organs. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they probably just expire. But I like that idea of having like a ticking clock of debt, you know, mm. sort of built into our biological, you know, self. Um, because I think we all kind of experience debt in, as being a motivating force. But right. it's in, it was interesting to me 10 years ago to think about death as having some d- debt as having some sort of a uh, biological component to it that you right. could actually you know measure I think the the other book that I've got to recommend I'm I'm wrote a book review for this one uh, so but I'd, I'd love it is barbarian days by William Finnegan the memoir of a surfing life oh yeah um, that was it is so impossible to capture the ineffability of that lifestyle not necessarily that experience but the the decision to orient your life around something that's as 
as meaningless, I guess, uh, in a broader sense. Mm -hmm. And coming to grips with making decisions to orient your life around something that has no real societal significance. Right. And you're talking about, uh, it's a, William Finnegan is a uh, New Yorker author who wrote this novel about a surfing life. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and it's about a very particular time in it, and when he was a surfer, and that's he was chasing waves. Well, that's his the main thing. I mean, the funny thing is, it's really the the press was somewhat divided. Some people were like, "Well, he's coming out of the closet as a surfer," because mm-hmm. he kind of I think he said something like that, and it got uh, they pounced on that. But he's been publishing articles on surfing for the New Yorker since 1994. Right. So um, this isn't really like a revelation that he has a surfing life. But what's interesting about the book is that he's continued to make this the red thread of his life, like the one thing that has oriented everything, really. And in terms of making sense of his life, um, you know, I think he's like 65, maybe 60. I don't know. Looks, But he... he uh, he still surfs and still orients his life to some extent around um, surfing, and it's like it's such a gross word, like surf. Talk about like <laughs> there's, it's like the. I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people would agree. The people who are into surfing would probably think of surf as the most beautiful word. I don't think there's anybody who thinks it's surf. I mean, surf, surf sounds like a bratwurst party. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, let's go to let's go to John's for that surf thing. It's uh, I, but. You know, the he's able to capture the experience in a way that literally no one has ever mm-hmm. done before. Like, there's nobody who's who's written anything that's even remotely as beautiful about um, being in the ocean and and orienting your life that way as as Barbarian Days. That's a, I don't know. I loved it. I thought it was really great. Wow. Yeah. I've, I would have never even considered it. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, filling in for uh, Drusif. Uh, Will, thanks for coming to the damn library today. Thanks for having me. This and, is great. Uh, you know, Drew should be next for next. Uh, be here for next episode, and uh, I'm not even sure we're going to be reading. But you should follow us on Twitter and uh, so many damn books dot com, so many damn books on Instagram. And if you are going to be so kind, uh, we love uh, iTunes ratings. It helps us a lot. So uh, going on iTunes and just giving us a review or actually writing us a review if you really like the show, we really appreciate it. And if you have a book that you'd like us to cover. Uh, so many to damn books at gmail.com. Uh, we love to hear from you, even if it is not about a book, but more about, you know, something we got wrong or very right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.